Good morning again. So, we're going to talk a little bit more about generosity, and specifically about Jesus' generosity. Um, This is, uh, I think, the seventh uh, lesson in a series that Mike's been doing on the character of Jesus. And so, uh, Mike asked me to preach and gave me this topic, right, and said... How about the generosity of Jesus? And I'm like, huh? What's that? Oh, amen. Well, we'll see. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, Mike gave me that topic. And I was like, that's that's interesting. I don't think I've ever really done a deep dive into the generosity of Jesus before, and um, it's been enlightening. It's been cool. A lot of things immediately came to mind. I found a few things that hadn't or immediately come to mind. But I'm hoping that you will find this inspiring. Because generosity is an inspiring trait, right? We like, we like generosity. We like it when people are generous with us, right? You like that? I like that. Such a, such a cheap way of getting an audience on Who likes generosity, right? <laughs> we all like generosity. Um, but, you know, what is generousness? What is generosity? It's just basically showing a readiness to give more of something, like money or time, that is, than is strictly necessary or expected, right? Pretty simple. And the antonyms for generosity are, are mean or stingy, Right? We like generosity. We don't like stinginess, you know. And if you uh, if you ever got a, did you ever get a, a birthday card when you were a kid and some money fell out? Do you remember the first time that ever happened? I, I remember the first time that ever a five dollar bill fell out of a birthday card, and I was like, "This is the greatest day of my life." I mean, it made an impact on me, um, and uh, it was just super cool. I mean, even kids now. They love Halloween. Why? It's like, oh my goodness. We've got, we got to find the house that gives out, A, the good candy, and a lot of the good candy. Right? So this was our first Halloween in Vermont. And so Sue did an amazing job of decorating our porch. We had some nice, cute, not-too-scary light-up ghosts and some pumpkins and some spiders. You know, and... and uh, I looked at the candy she got. Actually, Kristen came over. She's like, ooh, people are going to love your house. And she got the good stuff. She got the Reese's peanut butter cups. I mean, to me, that's that. That's it. That's solid gold. That is full size. Oh, yeah. This is no joke. Now, the only drawback was we may have turned out to be slightly understocked. So we didn't really, this being our first Halloween in our neighborhood, we didn't really know what our, you know, flow through was going to be like. And uh, I actually had to leave for a moment and I came back, you know, I left with, you know, kids coming up to the porch and, you know, the porch lit up and everything. When I drove back home, I like to barely spot our house because... There's no street lights on our street. Our house was completely pitch black. No lights on the porch. Also, our Halloween, all of our Halloween decorations were gone. I was like, oh my goodness. This is a rough neighbor, rougher neighborhood than I thought. They stole all of our, they shot out our lights and stole our Halloween. I come in and Sue is literally huddled in a blanket in a, in a rear room. I'm like, honey, what are you doing? She's like, we ran out of candy. I had to just fail. <laughs> we couldn't have people, you know, couldn't have disappointed kids continuing to come to us. But from, from, from a young age, we appreciate generosity. Amen? Amen. And you know, you may 
think of some, there's some famous stories of generosity, right? Do you ever hear about the waitress in Indiana who got a $10,000 tip at Pizza Hut? There was a, there was these, uh, there are these customers who she got to know over time. It was a mother and a daughter and they'd always come in and order the same meat lover's pizza. And, you know, they, they got, got to know each other. She was 20 years old. This happened about seven years ago. And, um, you know, they, they eventually told the witches, oh, actually, yeah, we're, we're leaving town in a couple of weeks. And she's like, oh, my goodness, make sure you come back in and see me before, before you leave. And in the process of their conversation over months, the waitress had disclosed that she had dropped out of school twice due to financial issues. So the last time that that mother and daughter came in to kind of have their goodbye pizza and ask specifically for this waitress, they ordered their regular meat lover's pizza and two Diet Cokes and gave her a tip of $10,000. And that's the kind of stuff that you find on the Internet because it makes news, right? Yeah. That's the stuff. Yeah. Why don't I ever... I, I worked at Brown's Chicken. I never got a, ten, I never got a $10 tip. Yeah, not $10,000. But those things make news. We love that stuff when people are abundantly generous. How about this? Here's a small story about a guy named Freddie Wachorek. He's a semi-retired Disney World security guard, and all he does is walk around in his uniform with an autograph book and walks up because a lot of families take their little kids and their little girls are dressed up as princesses, right, when they go to Disney World. Apparently that's a thing. So he takes his, he, he, all he does all day is walk around with an autograph book and, and walk up to these little girls and go, are you a real princess? And he has them sign his book. And a lot of times it's just little scribbles. They can't even write yet. But they're like, oh my goodness. You know, they're, they're a little celebrity. And it makes their day. But that's all he does for his work now. I mean, there's a generosity of spirit there, right? Have you ever heard of Dr. Jonas Salk? Yeah. If Margaret were here, she would know who that is. And we, many of you know. He invented, developed the polio vaccine. Now, do you know that Dr. Jonas Salk decided not to patent that vaccine so that it could be more readily and cheaply available to the masses? So he chose not to patent it, and they estimated that he forfeited uh, $7 billion by not doing that. But why did he do it? A generosity of spirit to save lives. These are inspiring stories. I'm going to give you one more. I wonder if you guys have heard of this guy, Cameron Lyle. Have you heard of this guy from the University of New Hampshire? Local guy in the America East Conference. He was a shot putter. Four years ago, Cameron had a chance to, it was the culmination, he had worked eight years to get to this point. I mean, four years in his college, but he was a senior. He had never won a gold, but he was slated to basically... He was a shoo-in to win the gold, the America East title, uh, uh, conference titles. And he basically got a phone call a month before the tournament saying, remember when you allowed your inner cheek to get swabbed in the, in the cafeteria two years ago at school to see if you could be someday a potential bone marrow donor match? And Cameron was like, eh. He barely remembered it, right? It's something you do. Yeah, yeah, I'll get swabbed. And 
The chances of being an exact match if you're not a family member is one in five million. He got a phone call a month before his final tournament of his career that was going to be the culmination of everything he worked for and said, you have been found to match someone. And we're going to need you. This, this person is going to die in like the next week if you don't give your bone marrow. And essentially what happens is if you do that, it's, it's basically you get a needle put into your pelvic bone and you can't lift anything for like a month after you do this procedure. He's a shot putter and a discus thrower. Cameron didn't hesitate. His, his, his exact quote was, it was a no-brainer. He basically forfeited the end of his career. <laughs> Look at my wife. Whenever Sue starts tearing up, then I'm going start, to start to go. Um, but basically, he forfeited the end of his college career in order to give bone marrow, bone marrow to a total stranger. He ended up actually being awarded the NCAA's Award of Valor, which is an award recognizing a courageous, courageous or noteworthy bravery by a brave act by an individual associated with intercollegiate athletics. But it's interesting reading the article about this guy. All of his quotes were like, I can't believe this is a big deal. This is somebody's life. This is just my athletic career. But we get inspired by that stuff, don't we? A generosity of spirit. And we're going to look at a few scriptures that talk about how Jesus is the complete and utter epitome and embodiment of the generosity of spirit. And I hope there's a couple things that we look at that maybe you haven't seen before. Look in uh, Matthew 14. And we're going to talk about three different qualities of Jesus. Generous qualities of Jesus. And the first point is Jesus is generously compassionate. In Matthew 14, there's a famous story about Jesus feeding the 5,000, right? Many of us know that, and I'm going to read that in a moment, but sometimes we miss the context of the day Jesus was having when he fed the 5,000. And the context of that, if you read the beginning of Matthew 14, is that Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, had just been executed by Herod, the king. And so Jesus had literally just heard that his cousin, who in Matthew 11, it's interesting what Jesus said about John the Baptist. He says, I tell you among those born of women there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Jesus had such deep respect and admiration for his cousin. And he just found out that the person who prepared the way for him, for his ministry, had been executed. So what did Jesus want to do? In verse 13, when Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. That makes sense, doesn't it? You found out that one of your closest, maybe even somewhat of a hero, 
in a way. Jesus had heroes. If anyone was his hero, John the Baptist would be the guy. He's saying, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than him. John had just been executed, so Jesus does what any of us would probably want to do if we heard someone close to us had just been executed. Had just been beheaded. You'd want to withdraw. You'd want to get some alone time. You'd want to get with your best friends, maybe, at the most, right? He basically withdrew with his disciples to a solitary place. But what happened? (laughs) Well, he was Jesus, so guess what? The crowds heard about it. Verse 13. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by broke privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he flung his arms in the air, turned around to his disciples and exclaimed, Are you kidding me? That's not what it says in your Bible, right? If this was written about me in that moment, that's maybe what that narrative would say. I think that's maybe what many of us would have done. I need to get some alone time. I just had something traumatic happen And I'm never going to see this person again. I need time to process. I need time to pray. I need comfort. I need... And this this crowd shows up. And what does he say? When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. We're talking about generosity, right? The generosity of Jesus' compassion. I think it's the hardest to be generous at times and the hardest to be compassionate when you need your time. And there's nothing wrong with anybody needing your time. Especially when someone dies, when you're trying to process something. Oh my goodness. But Jesus is setting the example for us in generosity, isn't he? As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Man, that sounds reasonable. Okay, we, we served, I healed their sick. You know, they can go now. You know, I, I've gone above and beyond. Jesus is like, no. Jesus replied, they don't need to go away. <laughs> I mean, how generous and compassionate is Jesus? You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven. He gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Again, the generosity of Jesus. Above and beyond. I'm not just meeting your needs. I'm providing richly for your needs and beyond. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. Generous. With leftovers. I love that touch. You know, Jesus is setting an incredible example here of compassion for us. Of giving of our time even when the last thing we want to do is give of our time. And... In each of these points, I think the practicals are just for us to continue to to evaluate where can we grow in our generosity, right? Where can we grow in being generous with one another? Look in Luke 23. Jesus is generously forgiving. Luke 23. 
know what? I'm sorry. I'm just going to quote that. You're close anyway. Go to Matthew 18. (laughs) So we really only need to read one verse in the entire Bible to talk about how generous Jesus was in his forgiveness. Right? How about from Luke 23, verse 34? Jesus said, Father, forgive them. From the cross. They don't know what they're doing. I mean, there it is. Jesus and Stephen is right up there. When you're forgiving your murderers in the moment you're getting murdered, that's generosity of spirit. That's generosity of forgiveness. There's never going to... You can't top that. So Jesus definitely had strong convictions about being generous with your forgiveness, right? He, he, in, in, in Matthew 18, look in verse 21. I love this question, because this is something we probably all want to know. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? I mean, that's a question I would ask Jesus if I was hanging with Jesus. Like, how many times do I actually have to forgive people? Right? I mean, you can see Peter's heart here. I mean, up to seven times? I mean, seven times max, right? Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. I wonder what, I wonder what Peter's face looked like when he got that. Then Jesus, to really hit it home, he tells this following parable. The parable of the unmerciful servant. In verse 23, Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. That's a beautiful story right there. Then verse 28, But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. We have an example of generosity, and now we have an example of not so much. Not lack of generosity. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me, and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servants just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. That's a rough one. That's a rough punishment for the unmerciful servant. Why is Jesus so intense about wanting us to be forgiving with one another? This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. You had to put that in there, from your heart. I forgive you. Ah, I know your heart. 
I mean, from your heart. It's got to be real. It's got to be genuine. This is a very intense scripture. It's, it's a command of Jesus. And why is he so strong on that? And I'm going to posit to you that the reason Jesus is so strong on that is because it's that important to our own souls. Not only does Jesus desire for us to imitate his generosity because that Jesus set us an example, he wants us to imitate that, but he does that all for a reason. He knows that it will kill us if we don't forgive. I want to share a story. This is actually from the Daily Mail in the United Kingdom. Yet it's a story about two people in Minnesota. (laughs) How does a story about two people in Minnesota get to the Daily Mail in the United Kingdom? It's 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 because it's an epic story of forgiveness and generosity. Check this out. I I encountered this. Sue and I were watching, I think it was 60 Minutes, like uh, a number of years ago. And I I remembered this story. And the first accounting of it came across from a paper in London. I was like, that makes sense. This is a story that deserves to be world famous. A mother whose only child was shot dead has shown the ultimate forgiveness. This is from June 8, 2011. A mother whose only child was shot dead has shown the ultimate forgiveness by inviting her son's killer to live next door. Mary Johnson, 59, now lives in the apartment adjoining the home of 34-year-old O'Shea Israel, and they share a porch. In February 1993, Mrs. Johnson's son, Laraminium Bird, 20, was shot in the head by 16-year-old Israel after an argument at a party in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Mrs. Johnson said she originally wanted justice and to see Israel locked up for what he had done. She said, my son was gone, I was angry, and I hated this boy. I hated his mother. This murder was like a tsunami. Shock, disbelief, hatred, anger, hatred. She said hatred twice. Blame. She I wanted to, him to be caged up like the animal he was. She decided to found a support group and counseled mothers whose children had been killed and encouraged them to reach out to the families of their murderers who were victims of another kind. Hurt is hurt. It doesn't matter what side you're on, she said. Then just a few years ago, the 59-year-old teacher and devout Christian asked if she could meet Israel at Minnesota's Stillwater State Prison. She said she felt compelled to see if there was a way in which she could forgive her son's killer. At first he refused, but then nine months later changed his mind. Israel said he was shocked by the fact that she wanted to meet him. He said, I believe the first thing she said to me was, Look, you don't know me, I don't know you. Let's just start with right now. He said, and I was befuddled. The pair met regularly after that. When Israel was was released from prison around 18 months ago, Mrs. Johnson introduced him to her landlord, who with her blessing invited Israel to move into the building. Mrs. Johnson and Israel are now close friends, a situation that she puts down to her strong religious beliefs, but says she also has a selfish motive. She said, unforgiveness is like cancer. It will eat you from the inside out. It's not about that other person. Me forgiving him does not diminish what he's done. Yes, he murdered my son, but the forgiveness is for me. 
Mary Johnson even wears a necklace with a two-sided locket. On one side are photos of herself and her son. The other has a picture of Israel. But I think that's an amazing example of someone recognizing that unforgiveness kills the person who has not forgiven. And what's interesting to me about moving from Chicago where our region, the part of our church was um, about six times the size of this group. And what's interesting about a larger church is that um, if you're not getting along with someone perfectly, it's not that hard to hide from them. It's not that hard to not spend time with them. Because you've got lots of choices, lots of options. You just hang with the people who you click with. You hang with the people who haven't offended you recently, you know, whatever, or that you've offended recently, you know. I mean, isn't that what we did growing up, maybe in high school? It's like, ah, you'll get the, those friends, ah, that friend, okay, that, not so much anymore, that's my group, okay, now not that, okay, now this group, right? If you, if you went to a big high school, you had that, but maybe you went to a tiny high school, you didn't have that. those choices either but I believe being in a small church here in Burlington is a special calling I believe it's a higher calling to generosity of spirit because many of you have known each other for over two decades you guys know each other and some of you don't some of you are new and, and but there's you can run but you can't hide here I see every one of you. I, I see you when you're sleeping. I know when you're awake. <laughs> All right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, I, you can, it's funny being up here. You know, you can just see who's who's really with you. Who's who's drifting? I'm like, I gotta step up my game. I gotta go. But you know, guys, we are called to, I believe, a higher calling of generosity in a church like this. Because if you're holding anything inside that would build a wall between you and someone else, it's not going to be long before you find yourself isolated. It's not going to be long before you find yourself lonely. That is not the life that God wants for us. In this church or any other, right? We have to be generous with our forgiveness. Liberal in implying grace to one another. Let it flow. Be the house with the good candy that doesn't run out. Don't ever turn your porch lights off. You know? Keep coming. Let people come onto your porch, guys. I think it's a high calling to be in a group like this. And, and, and I feel it. I feel it differently than I felt it in Chicago. And so that just gives me more of a respect for those, for, for those of you who have been here and built this church. It's a lot. It's like family. You've got to love family. If you don't, it's heartache for the rest of your life. They're not going anywhere. Right? We don't want to go anywhere, guys. We want to administer that grace to one another, be generous in our forgiveness. Amen? Amen. We're going to finish out in this last point. Jesus is generously selfless. 
I'm going to kind of, I need to bring this in for a landing, so I'm going to try to make this quick. But in Luke 17, this is one of the um, least favorite passages of mine in the entire Bible. Luke 17, verse 7 says, suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? First of all, I'm like, yeah, why not? I know some of you are still getting there. I'm going to start again. Luke 17, verse 7. Suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Won't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink. After that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants, we have only done our duty. Who loves that passage, right? (laughs) That's not the America I want to live in. That's not the life I want to live in. That's not the job I want to have. Where I do everything I'm supposed to do and no one thanks me. That's not what I signed up for. That's not what I want. And rightfully, people have fought against that culturally and historically for years. Because we want thanks, we want praise. We want to be built up. Yet, what is Jesus asking here? He's calling us to empty ourselves like a servant. And he's not calling us to do anything that he didn't do. Right? 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Philippians 2. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, it's verse 2, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in Spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, not looking for thanks, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one, other, with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Jesus voluntarily emptied himself. And that is the ultimate act of generosity. Completely emptying yourself for someone else. Wanting nothing for yourself and wanting everything for for others. That's a high calling. To be that kind of a servant. Ephesians 5.1 says, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. 
Ultimately, Jesus voluntarily laid his life down for us, right? That's the ultimate act of generosity. And I hope that what we get inspired by today is imitating that generosity of spirit that Jesus demonstrated in everything he did. Ultimately, his entire mission was to display that ultimate act of generosity, literally giving himself up for us. And I'm going to finish with this story. This is a story in Australia um, from an Australian newspaper from a few years ago. The father of an Australian woman has described the final act of a heroic young skydiving driving instructor who calmly told his daughter their plane would crash and embraced her to protect her from the impact. The instructor and five other people died when their plane hit a power pole and nosedived into a tree soon after takeoff from an airport near St. Louis in the U.S. state of Missouri on Saturday. Investigators believe the plane had engine failure. A witness reported seeing its right engine in flames moments after, moments after takeoff. Two people, including Australian tourist Kimberly Deer, 21, were seriously injured and remain in a U.S. hospital. Her father, Bill, of Sydenham in Melbourne's north, northwest, today said the final moments of the life of skydiving instructor Robert Cook, 22 years old, had been truly heroic. This is her father talking. He's a hero. There's no other way I can describe it, Mr. Deer told the Nine Networks Today show from his daughter's bedside. It was utterly amazing. When he realized the plane was actually going to crash, he grabbed Kimberly and he calmly talked to her and he told her that the plane was going to crash. He told her what to expect and what to do and kept her calm and focused and and focused her attention on him and what he was saying rather than what was happening around her. Kim was going to do a tandem job jump with Robert so that she had the harness for the tandem jump on as Robert did as well. So Robert actually clipped the harness together and as the plane was coming down, he put his arms around her and pulled her close. As he pulled her close, her head rested on his shoulders. He put his head against hers to stop it flopping around. He said to her, as the plane is about to hit the ground, make sure you're on top of me so that I'll take the force of the impact. The plane actually hit, they believe, a power pole or a power line and it went into a vertical situation and she became a little bit disoriented, but she felt Robert actually twist his body around until Kim was on top of him when the plane hit the ground. He took the full force of the impact. Kimberly suffered pressured vertebrae, severe muscle tears around her spine, a broken pelvis and collarbone, many cuts and abrasions, a concussion, and severe bruising, her father said. The, the, the rest of the story is she's fine now. Her sister, Tracy Deer, speaking in Melbourne, said Mr. Cook must have known he was giving his life for Kimberly's as the plane plunged to, her, to earth. There's nothing I can't even put into words, but the only thing I can think of is saying thank you so much, she said. I can't believe that in this world when so many people are so jaded that there are people out there like that. He met Kimberly, as far as I know, that day. I would do that for her, but I can't believe that a stranger who just met her would knowingly give up his life for her. I just want his family to know we appreciate that from the bottom of our heart. But essentially, guys, that story is worldwide because... 
It's someone who didn't know someone else heroically taking the impact of a collision and saving a life. But we are all in a burning plane that's going to hit the ground someday. Jesus embraced us, spun around, and took the impact. That's Jesus' generosity. Amen? So I think everything, you know, anything that Jesus did should be famous. If he did it today, it would be in papers all around the world. His generosity of spirit, it's all because he loves us so much. Let's show that same generosity of spirit towards one another. Amen? Let's imitate Jesus' heart of generosity. Let's just continue to impact our wonderful family. Amen?